Welcome back to another episode of Max Planck Florida's Neurotransmissions Podcast. I'm Joe Schumacher, and I'm joined by Misha Smirnov. Hello. How's, how's it going? Hey, buddy. We are uh, going to dive into a completely new realm of neuroscience for the podcast. We haven't talked about language, but today's guest uh, is an expert in the neurobiology of language, which is something that um, I have a little bit of background in. I, I come from a songbird background, but uh, songbirds, of course, don't have a language per se. They're just vocal communicators who learn developmentally. Now, you and I both have young children. You just said to me today that your kid is learning to sing. And it's like a, a baby bird who doesn't understand bird song yet uh, and, and has never really gotten experience phase. to it. Yeah. yeah. My kid is a little too young to be at the language phase right now, but um, he makes noises, like for sure. And it, it really makes you get thinking a little bit about what's going on in the brain developmentally as all this stuff is And happening. if you're getting really excited for development of uh, language processing and birdsong, then we are not going to talk about any of that right now, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm just trying to have a, a sort of like, uh, how do you go from point A in my brain to talking to an expert on the neurobiology of language, which I know nothing about. I'm trying to take baby steps into this topic. Sure. Maybe but, we should actually the, the introduce way, this guy. We, we should introduce him. But before we introduce him, we have to explain that in grad school, we all learned about... Uh, Broca and Wernicke, and that they're uh, the region of the brain uh, eponymous to them basically controls all your speaking, all your understanding of speech. And, um, and that is a model of uh, speech perception and production that goes unchallenged to this day. And I, I assume our, our guest is going to explain how that's correct, and, and we don't really need to do any more work uh, dividing that up in exactly. any small part. Today's guest is Dr. David Purple. Uh, he's director of the Department of Neuroscience at the Max Planck Institute for Empirical Aesthetics in Frankfurt, Germany. He's also a professor of psychology and neuroscience at NYU. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, so Broca and Wernicke, where do we go from there? We've learned everything we need to know about language. Um, since we're done, we go home. The <laughs> There's something deeply fascinating about insights that are you know, about 150 years old that remain so powerful and influential now. And so in some sense, the original model of how language is represented and processed in the brain really goes back to these findings from the 1860s. And so you know, Broca, a very insightful and smart neurologists tested this patient and discovered that there is a region of the brain that when injured, for instance, through stroke, impairs your ability to speak. And some years later, about 10 years later, the German neurologist Wernicke, or <laughs> Wernicke um, discovered kind of similar thing. And if you have a lesion in the posterior temporal lobe, you have, you're still fluent but you don't, you don't make much sense. So the idea was you have an area for language production and an area for language comprehension. They're somehow um, connected. And that's uh, intuitively very pleasing. Um, and you know, there are reasons where you can imagine that that's you know, vastly underspecifies the complexity of the process. But what's sort of interesting from the point of view of history and of the neurosciences is the unbelievable staying power of that idea. And so until about 2000, right? So uh, the last 20 years really has been substantial progress and, and challenges to this. But for, you know, well over 100 years, this model was the standard model, not just for understanding basic insights of research or biology, but also for clinical practice. 
because that is the model on the basis of which you're treated when you go to the hospital and have a stroke. So, I mean, you have to ask yourself, I mean, this is, you know, this is not just fanciful and nerds like us sitting around. I mean, it's literally what I learned in medical neuroscience. It is what you learn in the medical textbook. It's what you learn as a neurologist. And actually today after my presentation, a clinical neurologist came to chat with me for a few moments about how I should be nicer. Um, but uh, so I have tremendous respect for the ideas and for these original insights and uh, I'm very explicit about it and write about it. That being said, you know, we uh, imagine you said such a thing about vision. So suppose, you know, given what we know now about the visual system, you said, you know, look, there's a vision lobe and then there's another lobe that's for, you know, vision, you know, prime. You would say, well, that's a little unusual because we, of course, know there's many kind, there's many aspects of vision. Maybe you can see motion, you can see, you know, color, you can see two D things, you can see form. Uh, so from primary cues at the in a receptor surface, you can derive all kinds of things. So vision is an intrinsically very complicated, subdivided phenomenon that's mediated by a whole bunch of areas, right? So in the macaque visual cortex, people estimate maybe 30 or 50 different visual areas. So why would you possibly believe that language, which is a truly, truly complex cognitive and perceptual capacity, should be so trivially explained? So basic skepti a basic skeptical stance should persuade you to think one more time. And so I don't think it's fair to say that it was, you know, deeply wrong. It's just underspecified, right? And so if I, you know, the one-line answer is from this, this classical model, which was language lives in the left hemisphere. There's a region in the front, there's a region in the back, and they're connected, and it's all one side, was extremely useful, and it's also wrong. So here's two, you know, here's the one-line answer to what, what's sort of our current thinking. It's very much borrowed from the visual system. That's to say... The language comprehension system, for sure, perhaps also the language production system, is unquestionably bilaterally mediated. So it's not a left. So the left hemisphere imperialism of the last hundred years is just not empirically correct. And the other thing is that the way it seems to break down in terms of the functional anatomy is that there is actually a dorsal stream and a ventral stream, much like the visual system. That is, that there are um, subdivisions that mediate subroutines you know, kind of computational chunks that do different kinds of things. So there's a ventral stream that as it goes more, uh, you know, let's say you start at the ear, you go into the auditory system, and you go, uh, you project down into areas that deal more with mapping to meaning, dealing with, you know, recognizing words, putting words together, deriving the content of the message. And then there are areas, and there's a stream more dorsally, right, is over the top of the head, if you will, and that deals more with mapping to our, the motor system, the articulatory uh, and, and you know other routines. So really borrowing from anatomic insights of the visual system, my colleague Greg Hickok and I, many years ago now, we started this you know, campaign, if you will, in 2000, um, have advanced this, uh, you know, what's now called the dual stream model, which I think is pretty popular now. And I think it's in some sense the default model now. Um, to give you a flavor of how this kind of idea develops, when we first advanced this, this was you know, developed by, by Hickok and me when we were both, I was a student, he was a postdoc. And when we first published this idea in 2000, we were considered basically insane. And um, 
the and we got reviews like you know we should learn some science we should learn some history we should learn everything and we clearly are untutored in all the necessary ideas and we really got we got our butts kicked pretty hard uh, and we followed up with a series of papers, you know, one in 2004 that was quite influential, and then one in 2007 that I think is probably now, now the standard view. And the irony is that after the first few years of getting really slapped around pretty hard by the establishment and being told that we're complete you know, doofuses, we never had any good years where it was just kind of like coasting. And now, if you go to a talk on language, actually the first, you know, one of the first slides you'll see is probably one of ours. There's a kind of standard drill stream model, which is then derided as the old school, you know, this is what the advanced older people think, and it's not new at all. It's like, when were our good years? First we were, you know, untutored, and now we're just old. <laughs> we never had any kind of like... Never had a heyday. We never had a heyday. But I think it's important to know that models are thinking about brain and language in a way that's sensitive to what we know about language, which is complicated, and what we know about the brain, which is complicated, simply needs to be enriched and sensitive to both aspects of the research program. So, I mean, when we say that some model as simple as, you know, Broca's and Wernicke's areas is essentially doesn't have enough complexity and, and specificity to it, um, is that something that you could say about virtually any model? I mean, once you start chopping it up into smaller blocks and you have the dual stream hypothesis, but uh, the dual stream model, um, can somebody else say that, you know... Um, why not a dual stream? Why, yeah, exactly. And I mean, is, is it... Uh, Philosophically, a good question uh, or just a bad question to say, you know, what is how does the brain control um, speech and language or is it ridiculous to say that this uh, specific and unique part of the brain controls language and speech and nothing else or is language and speech maybe not as defined at, uh, in the brain as it is in the way that we see our own behavior? I mean... There's a lot of questions and a lot of polemics buried in that question. Uh, let me unpack it a little bit. The, um, so with respect to specificity, you know, surely it's true that many of the parts of the brain, let's say many of the computational chunks that form the basis for language processing are shared with other, you know, so let's say at the ear, something gets to the eardrum, that's for any sound, right? It's not like there's a language-specific eardrum or something like that. And of course, all sounds go in, or whether you're reading, all things come, you know, come through your eyes. So there are um, processes that are clearly shared and not domain-specific. But at the end, you know, when you, when you go to the, let's say, the perceptual end game, what is it that you have to actually accomplish there is a remarkable degree of specificity, and I think there's increasing consensus on that. So that is, it's not just you know any old generic cognitive domain. And in particular, you might think of you know what is it that you're trying to do as we're having this conversation, other than you know, stay awake. It's uh, you have to map to words, right? So if something comes in, which is just a vibration, a mechanical vibration of your eardrum, and your job is to extract a sequence of words out of that that you connect to meaning. And those parts are actually remarkably specific. That is, what it means to know a word and its infrastructure is exceedingly complicated. People dramatically underestimate what it means to know a word. So in the sense in which language is different than other domains, is it's a system of knowledge. There's two things you know when you know a language. One is you know your vocabulary, which, by the way, is you know, pretty remarkable. So hyper-educated people like you guys probably have the vocabulary of you know something like 40 to 100,000 words, 
which you can access every 200 milliseconds on the fly, even under weird audio circumstances like that. So it's a really, really good system. The other thing you have in your head other than is you have a, a system, we can call it rules, a system of constraints that allow you to put words together to interpret them correctly, right? So without, you know, so this is tacit knowledge. So, you know, you know for instance, if I say um, a man bites dog, you know that that's weird. Uh, if I say dog bite man, bites man, that's not news. Why do you know that? Because the word order of English is such that it constrain, you know, tells you who did what to whom. And more interesting you know, structures are, are across all languages. So how do you have this tacit knowledge? You have to learn it because it's different for different languages. So the two things you have to have in your system of knowledge is the vocabulary, which is a deeply mystifying feat. Nobody knows how that works at all. And uh, learning a system of rules, you know, maybe it's one rule, maybe it's a hundred rules. We don't know. It's an empirical question that condition how you put stuff together to interpret it. And then that's a little bit different from other domains. And the domain specificity, in some sense, comes in what I, you know, typically or in my lecture day called the parts list, right? So the final elements of the computation are a little bit different. Music is also a very complicated auditory phenomenon, also hierarchically structured, sequentially structured. And, and a function of knowledge, but the primitives at the end, that is the Lego blocks that make up your experience of music are quite different. Right? So the, the final or the, what are called the terminal elements of the computation are not the same. So there is a degree of specificity. So it's not just any old mush of cognition. There, is, there must be um, regions, circuits, cells that are particular to the, to the subroutines that, that constitute what it means to know a language. And it's extremely difficult to figure out. I mean, ironically, you know, what people, I mean, here's my, my view of, of the moment is that they, I mean, for 30 or 40 years, the position was always, well, you know, it's easy to learn words. We have a sense of what words is. It's just, you know, the rules of syntax. That's a hard problem. But it, it turns out that it's actually the other way around. We're making unbelievable amount of progress on what it means to put words together, what, to construct, you know, sentence structures that are interpreted. What turns out to be much more difficult is what does it mean to know a word? And how is information stored? And the problem lies in neuroscience in general. It's not just that we don't know what it means to have a word, know a word, say a word. We don't know how anything is stored. So those of you who work on you know, synaptic physiology or hippocampus will tell me, oh, but memory is the relationship. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a synaptic phenomenon to which I say, show me the money. You know, show me a model by which a synaptic pattern of firing is the information that, that encodes knowing, you know, knowledge of something. But do we at least have a, a scale of knowing something? I mean, is it possible that a synaptic fi uh, rate of firing is, say, a phoneme? No, we don't have even that. We have nothing. We have, we, I mean, that's the sense in which neuroscience is bankrupt. As we talk about memory and we talk about learning and we understand neither. And since those two fundamental phenomena uh, uh, apply to language just as to everything else, this is a serious problem. Since we don't know how information of any kind is actually stored, right? We have metaphors for it, like synaptic mechanism or cells that fire together, wire together. You know, any kind of metaphor you enjoy is, but none of these are actually speaking to the issue of how information is stored specifically. I mean, we have correlative information, of, you know. This pair of cells goes together, and then you go over here because you know the ventral tegmental area and the you know, nucleus accumbens fired, and so you go to the right. Okay, 
but that doesn't tell me about the information itself. So how do you know, you know, where, where, you know, the word beer or more complicated, the word or is stored? Words that have multiple meanings. Words that have multiple meanings. Words that actually, you know, let's, you know, look. Here's here's everybody's favorite idea. In some sense, the favorite idea comes from embodied cognition, a brand of psychology that I find, uh, I guess, incoherent. It's the nicest thing I could say. So, the, the assumption is let's th- let's figure out what it means to know a word. Let's pick the word cat because it's such a nice word. So to know a cat is you you draw a list of features of what cats are: fluffy, about yay big, you know, go meow, and so on. So you decompose into a set of features. And then what it means to know that concept and then possibly the label is all those things are co-activated. So I've got the fluffy uh, fluffy fur activation. I've got the meow activation. I've got the yay big activation. I've got the mammal activation. And all of those nodes together amount to the concept cat. Um, okay, so f- first of all, um, have many objections to that for reasons that we don't have to go into. It has to do with how you combine things, you know, the problem of combinatoriality. I think even Aristotle actually showed how that can't be right. So it's an old chestnut. Right? But now try to do that exercise for, so let's suppose it were true for the sake of argument. So suppose you have a theory of meaning that all the words in your head, let's for the sake of argument say, because you guys are so educated, 100,000 things. We have 100,000 things stored and all of them are just a list of features. Right? That's the favorite theory of psychology. And now, uh, that's all very nice and good, except how many words like that are there? Well, it turns out to be vanishingly small. So now you are building a theory of meaning for a sub for, for just a proportion of words that are actually decomposable like that to begin with. So that's so now you've backed yourself in their corner. Now you need another theory of meaning. Namely, for all those things that are, let's say, abstract concepts that you can't decompose like that, that don't have a list of features that are obvious sensory motor things. So now you have a second theory. Now you need a third one for all the logical items that are completely different, that are functional items, you know, and or not uh, prepositions pro, uh, and pronouns, the kind of things that are so-called functional items. So now you've just decided you have three different theories of meaning. But using Occam's broom, you should at least get rid of two of those, right? So um, this is the kind of problem you have. It's because we don't have very compelling theories of what it is to have knowledge of a concept and knowledge of a word that goes with that, which is the label to the thing, right? Because this is exceedingly difficult. And we underestimate the complex. I mean, believe you me that I would, I'm the first guy to embrace if we had any vague idea about this, but I'm stumped. I can't give you a, so here's the thing. I can't give you a theory of cat. That's shameful. Well, I, I wonder if we could... Let me propose a theory of cat. Okay. This sort of gets back to the idea of um, the parts list in, in my mind, because for neuroscience, we have an idea what the parts list is. I mean... What's the, what's the parts list? Neurons, dendrites, spines, somehow circuits, all these things, you know, are, in, are, are encoding information. Information can be retrieved. The Lego blocks that make up they're, neuroscience. Yeah, they're the Lego blocks of neuroscience. Um, now, because I'm not a linguist, I don't. Nec- I know that there must be a parts list for language. That there are functional units of language. There are, you know, rules that govern how those things are used. Now, we think about, you know, the question of what is the meaning of a word, or like, you know, 
what does it mean for a word to have meaning? Um, those might be two separate questions. But um, I guess part of the question is what is the what is the role of words in conveying meaning in language? And part of that is to like transmit the idea from one person's brain to the other. Mm -hmm. So words having meaning by themselves aren't entirely the whole picture. Part of it is like I'm trying to figure out what's going on in your head based on what you're saying. So could there possibly be a role for both, you know, the auditory, you know, or visual cues that give rise to the interpretation of the word that you've either written or said to me, but also the motor actions that are giving rise to it. I mean, um, is it possible that part of what's missing here is that um, part of what I'm figuring out when I'm figuring out what you mean in your head is what your brain is doing to produce those words? I mean, is the meaning somehow not just some abstract cognitive concept, but is it maybe more simply just motor commands? Um, it that is the embodied kind of story, and so there's. That, two, that's the story you, th you find incoherent. Well, I find it, yeah, it's just wrong. And so the uh, good job, Joe. But that's good. I mean, it's it's good to learn, right? right. We, we learn from our mistakes. It's not my mistake. I mean, it's not it's not my. I'm idea. pinning it on you, though. Okay. So. I'll, I'll be the embodied <laughs> you're, you're, cognition guy. Well, no, look, I mean, it's the most popular theory around. So you're in good company, right? Very smart people think this is the right way to go. So there's two, two, let me give you two flavors uh, or two issues. One is um, the issue, again, of combinatoriality, right? So it's not that we try to just you know, pull out out of a bag of words a single word, which is a pointer to a single concept. Actually, open parenthesis. What is the relationship between language and thought to begin with? That is another whole very big area and, and a very contentious one. There are colleagues, some of whom I even respect, who believe a, what's called the Worfian hypothesis, right? That is the limits of your language or the limits of your mind, which is how Wittgenstein called this. That is to say, you can only think what you can say or what you can formulate in language. I think that's not a good theory. And there are various pieces of evidence that um, argue against this position. One is, for instance, well, let's start with humans, aphasics, right? So you can have a very severe aphasia, global aphasia, even where you cannot, you know, you can't use language at all, but you can solve all kinds of other problems, right? So it's not that you're cognitively incapacitated. Aren't okay. children another example of this? Per, that's my next example. So pre-verbal children do extremely sophisticated things across all kinds of domains, and you would hardly say, well, that kid can't think. You know, I mean, the beautiful experiments by people like Liz Spelke, Rene Bayarjon, Susan Carey on pre-verbal kids of extremely sophisticated cognitive capacities. They just rule that out. And then, of course, you know, we wouldn't say that, you know, animal cognition isn't very rich and, and you know, wonderful, and they're presumably nonverbal in a typical sense. So I think that's not a particularly and oh, by the way, just is a really boring example. Of course, every word has multiple concepts to point to. There were, I don't know, what's a spring, right? So it's spring in Florida. Uh, that's the season, that's a mechanical thing that can be a verb. So it's just, you know, it's there's no mapping that's one-to-one -one from label to concept. So it's just, you know, there's a, of course, there's a relationship between language and thought because we use language to express thought often, but it's not a one-to-one -one mapping and they can be dissociated. I think that's an important prerequisite. And so, but back to the, so close parenthesis. Uh, so back to the issue of, you know, you want to communicate with me. We don't communicate simply in pulling out a single word out of my bag of words, but we put words together, right? So we say, some, let's say, two cats. Now try to do that. 
the what's your feature bundle for two and what's your feature bundle for cats. Now you got to put those two together and you get a different concept, namely two of that particular type. And then you need to deal with that. So that's actually a much more complicated problem. Not for us, we do it behaviorally, trivially, in you know, 100 milliseconds. But to actually do all the steps that you have to do, if you had to write the cookbook or you know, the set of algorithms, so that's actually a pretty, pretty complicated story. And if you actually have the motor action plan of that, you need to show me how that would actually work. That is, how do you do the problem of what's called compositionality? So the interesting and beautiful thing about language, and there's very few examples from other communication systems like that, is what's called the compositionality. That is, we don't just talk in single words like, you know, snake or monkey. We say two cats or, where, you know, where's the beer? And these are uh, combinations of things that are interpreted as a combination and not as a sequence of single items. And that's a crucial difference. The second thing, and this is getting, this gets a little more esoteric and you know, weird cognitive science way is it's true that we use language for communication. It's not actually trivially true that language is for communication. That's a much more tricky issue, right? So obviously we use it for communication, which is what we're doing right now. You're, you guys ask me weird questions and I'm giving you weird answers. You know, we're just having a, you know, a bunch of nerds sitting around. So that's sort of you know, a trivial observation about using this behavior. A very, very different question is phylogenetically. Let's say we're about, let's say, between 200,000 and 150,000 years old in terms of our brain. And it's not clear that language is for communication. And these kind of uh, goal-directed, you know, teleological questions in evolution are extremely sketchy and dangerous to answer. And they lead to all sorts of fun but nonsensical explanations. Like it's, you know, my personal favorite is the grooming theory, right? So the reason we have language is because if I'm grooming you and you're sitting in front of me and I'm picking the you know bugs out of your fur so I can you know clean you and eat them, and you know the other monkey walks by, I want to talk about that monkey. I mean, that's the gossip theory of language evolution, like for real. You don't think that's a good theory? I love that theory. It's a great theory. It's hilarious. But I'm like, okay, but uh, what's the evidence for I mean, I can come up with like five other cool theories, right? So, it's a, so is this a more philosophical point that, I mean, language as a form of communication is evolutionarily advantageous. That doesn't mean it's for communication. That's exactly right. We want to, I just think we want to be very careful about What's the, the difference between evolutionary, evolutionarily advantageous and, and for? Well, I mean, for me, I guess... I'm imagining no that like for. language doesn't have like a like whose purpose is it that language is for communication? I mean, I mean it could be for something very different. Right? So one could imagine that one thing it's useful for is to make thought um, explicit to yourself. Right? So it is a way to map thoughts to things that you can actually move around and combine. So one could imagine that it's you know it happened to be such that you know we got a bunch of circuits that allowed you to actually link. Uh, you know, thought of some form, which is itself probably a generative system, to linguistic computation. To get, but that means, you know, that would mean, if that's right, that we use language more to talk to ourselves than to talk to each other, which is not a crazy theory either, right? I mean, do you actually make stuff explicit to yourself in language as you're driving to work, or actually you do? That doesn't mean you exclusively think in linguistics terms, but it's certainly one of the predominant forms of making thought explicit to yourself. 
Sure. So that's it. So that's as good a theory as any other. But in the in the sense that you know feathers are uh, beneficial for flying, but they're also beneficial for showing off your bright feathers. Yes. Right. Both like can be true. Yeah. Containing heat, body heat. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So we. I just. I mean, the only reason I'm being a little, you know, sort of, you know, exercising uh, terminological pedantry is that I don't want to go down the path of the sort of glib. Well, it's obvious that language is for communication because, I mean, we're talking about a biological system, you know, sort of cortical and a little bit subcortical of the human brain that has certain properties, and that's what we try to study. And maybe it's for cooling the blood, as Aristotle said. We don't know, right? I mean, I don't think we have to engage in four questions. We're in the business trying to figure out how does this thing work, what does it do, what breaks it, can we understand its boundary conditions, and so on and so forth. I think we want to be very careful. Um, my question is sort of like going from having interesting questions about language and ideas about, you know, the functions of language that language scientists have spent hundreds of years working on to this new thing we have where we're studying the brain, new meaning like less than 200 years old um, from a biological standpoint. How do you go about um, starting with, you know, basic understanding of language behavior and then get into the brain and look how that behavior is instantiated? Like, and I'm saying this as you as a researcher, like, what is the day to day in, in your lab? In Why do they of, pay you money? Yeah. Why do you volunteer your time <laughs> for this uh, esoteric cause? Um, so, um, so the day-to-day is like is like any other lab. So we work on you know the people in my labs work on different kind of problems. So maybe you know some team works on word recognition or learning words or storing words and what does that actually mean. Others work on just more the auditory periphery. How does a signal get from you know a vibratory stimulus at the cochlea to the eardrum into some weird pattern of spikes that then has to get decoded somewhere else and you know, that's very uh, other people work on, let's say, psychophysics experiments to really try to figure out what are the Lego blocks, what are sort of the elementary computations, and so on. So lab work is, you know, in a, in a neuroscience lab like mine, is very much like any other lab. Some of the experiments are, you know, we have particular theories. It's very theory-driven. You, know, you have to have a pretty clear model in your head, and you try to formulate a hypothesis, ideally one that makes very clear, you know, a clear articulates a clear consequence from some model. Say, if this is right, then we expect A and B to be true. And if, if the other model is right, we expect C and D to be true. And then we try to adjudicate between those alternatives by designing experiments. Often the experiments in my own lab are, even though it's a neuroscience, my labs are neuroscience labs, are actually behavioral experiments because I, I'm trying to put my money where my mouth is, right? So I wrote a paper a couple of years ago about behavior should really take a more sort of muscular leadership role in neuroscience, because if we're trying to explain the behavior part, we sure as hell better you know, be careful in understanding it. So there's a lot of what we, what we call psychophysics as sort of carefully, excruciatingly, even skull-crushingly boring experiments where participants sit in some booth and listen to you know, some sounds or some words or some sentences and push a button or you know, God knows. And we try to get a, as clear as possible a view on what are the the set of algorithms that, that underlie this. And then we design experiments using neurobiological tools that you can use in the human brain to, you know, to measure things and to test these alternative views. There are, in some sense, two broad flavors of, of um, or let's say three, of studying the human brain. 
the oldest one, unsurprisingly, is to study broken brains. And you know, I don't do that so much, but it's a extremely valuable, in some sense, has been the most valuable contribution. That is, you study um, participants who've had a stroke, um, who've had, let's say, a surgical excision of some part of the brain, who've had bullet wounds. And nowadays we have another way. So you study the disrupted brain in order to understand something about its organization and function. Now there are other techniques that you can use to stimulate the brain. One is called, um, the popular one is transcranial magnetic stimulation. Right? So it's like, uh, you know, you inject a little bit of current into the brain to try to locally disrupt activity. There are other techniques, uh, transcranial direct current stimulation, things like that. So those are those are newer techniques in which you again try to manipulate from the outside uh, brain activity in a you know, well-controlled way. To the more typical things that you that you read about and that you see in the media a lot are the non-invasive recording techniques, of which there are basically two flavors, easy to remember, the red ones and the blue ones. The red ones are based on blood, therefore red. And those are based on measurements that you make on uh, change because, uh, you know, the nervous system uses lots of, um, well, lots of blood is around it, in the vasculature, in the microvasculature. And, and clever engineering tricks have allowed us to measure these uh, you know, as a surrogate for brain activity, the local activity that way. The technique that everyone has heard about the most is called magnetic resonance imaging, right? MRI, people have had it because you've blown out your knee or your lower back hurts. And that technique has been used you know, with huge, uh, hugely popular for the last about a little less than 20 years. And really started effectively in, in 1991, 1992. And so that measures you know, a proxy for brain activity, blood flow or blood oxygenation. In specific. Uh, very, and it takes very fine-grained pictures you know, with a millimeter resolution, sometimes even better. But the way you take those pictures is very slow. So you get a really, really um, high-resolution picture of the brain, different slices of the brain. So you get a lot of anatomy, but because the picture is very slow, you know, in the order of a second or more, that's very slow for brain activity. So cells are super fast in the scale of milliseconds, and these techniques don't don't um, offer that. And that's because the the signal that's being read in the blood is slow. That's right. So you're uh, constrained by what's called the hemodynamic response, right? So there's some cellular activity somewhere. Um, then there's blood flow, blood oxygenation, blood volume changes. Those are the proxies for neural activity, and those are really slow relative to the electrophysiological activity of the brain. So you have really good spatial resolution. Like so you can take a picture with a millimeter, which is really amazing, but the temporal resolution is not so impressive. And then the other techniques, which are, let's say, the blue ones, are based on electricity, and so they're the non-red ones. And those are things like EEG, which has been around a long time, or you know, electroencephalography, magnetoencephalography, and those measure neural activity directly. So those are, you know, uh, real, you know, in some sense, you know, every thousands of a second or whatever you want, you can measure a brain activity. But their spatial resolution is comparatively poor. So you're really measuring more the timing of activity and less the, um, less the localization. And by combining these different techniques that are non-invasive, right? So you can do it on undergraduate volunteers, on elderly populations, even on your own kids. You know, been there, done that. Uh, it's these are safe, used in all kinds of medical contexts, and they've been harnessed to you to do basic research. Now, that's amazing that you can do this, right? From the point of view of engineering, that we can record from the inside of a human brain using these techniques is phenomenal. 
However, the pieces, the, the Lego blocks of the brain are way, 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 way smaller. And so it's a very big limitation that we only have what we must now as neuroscientists consider extremely coarse techniques. Right? So here everybody is obsessed with, let's say, examining a circuit using a two-photon microscopy or something. Right? But it's simply not possible, at least currently in the human brain. And so we have to make do with what are you know, ultimately not satisfying approaches. They're the best we've got going. And so unless we give up, that's what we're going to do. But we can't, you know, stain, label, uh, or do any other weird optogenetic manipulation. So we have to basically use indirect measures and a lot of modeling and sort of uh, hypothesis-driven experimentation in order for us to have linking views from what we measure to what you guys measure at the level of cells. So using uh, your course techniques and fMRI, you can find uh, probably Broca's area. You can find Broca's area, uh, but you can also find... So since those techniques actually are good at spatial resolution, if your question is well done, you can find that Broca's area really is like 12 little Broca's areas. And that's one of the original problems, right? So if you attribute function to the brain, which is sort of the business we're in, um, you want to say what is the likely operation happening or being supported by this part of the brain? And so if Broca's area was originally an area for the production of speech or language, it's now clear that it's actually, there is no such thing as a Broca's area. There's a thing as like you know, a subdivision of probably a dozen, maybe more areas there. And they're likely to support many different functions. Just like the visual system we now know, you know, you go from primary visual cortex to you know, frontal lobe regions that have visual sensitivity and even retinotopic organization means there's all forms of subroutines. And that's, so you find an area, but you, what you find is it's com it's highly complex in its local organization. And so are you looking specifically to map uh, where activity is coming from when we're speaking, when we're listening, or are you looking at the activity itself? Uh, yes. Um, so in some studies, we try to do, uh, use these techniques to really identify uh in some sense, you know, do the homework of localization, as we want to know. So, you know, to take an example of a what I consider a reasonably carefully done fMRI study, and Tobias Overath, a former postdoc in my lab, and Josh McDermott, who was a postdoc at NYU as well, did an fMRI study um, where we tried, you know, very specifically in a series. Of, you know, it's not one study; it's whatever eight experiments end up in one of these things, but they try to identify is there a local specialization for the signal that gets interpreted as speech versus anything else. So is there a speech-specific area that's not responsive to other types of sound? Right? So is there an area that just takes a complicated signal and extracts what's ultimately um, interpreted as speech? And there is such an area. You know? So it's actually in the superior temporal sulcus, so the you know, upper part of the temporal lobe. And... Um, so there we use fMRI to map as fine-grained as we can local activation patterns that tell us, okay, so here now there's a degree of specialization, maybe not complete, but it's you know, compelling. So now we know where to take the next step. We can say, now let's look at that area in more detail. And then what we want to know is, of course, less about localization because we can't get more fine-grained, right? We can't, you know, short of some surgical things, we can't stick electrodes in there. So then you try to say, let's look at that as a region of interest or as a kind of part of the map that we want to understand more deeply. 
and begin to look at electrophysiological signals and see, well, how is that area modulated? What does it care about? What makes its activity go up, down, left, right, and center? So we just do normal science. We do a bunch of experiments to try to understand what changes uh, modulate the activity of an area in order to begin to build a model of what's going on there. So it's really, you always have this trade-off. Of, you know, you have to do the kind of, in some sense, boring part of where is stuff going on, because, but that's sort of, again, a test bed for the, where you then ask the real question of, well, what's actually going on and how does it work? But of course, you want to do it in the right part of the head, because you know, the head's a small place, the brain's a small place. But it's also a very big place. There's a bunch of, you know, we estimate, our current estimate is 86 billion neurons, right? Uh, of which the majority is in the cerebellum, it turns out, about you know, 65 billion or so. And, uh, but it's in this small place. There's a lot of different stuff going on. So the trade-off between localization and function is really difficult to solve. So, you know, I, I think we're, we're just about out of time, but, um, you know, you've written and talked today about the importance of behavior and making bio behavior a priority um, so that you have some targeted research going into the brain so you can understand ultimately we, what we all want to know is what is the brain doing to accomplish these behaviors. When you are doing your, your neurobiological experiments, does that ever make you rethink the behavior itself? I mean, is it sort of a two-way street? You learn something about the brain in the service of the behavior that makes you sort of challenge what you thought about the behavior to begin with. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is, there's no, uh, let's say, priority of, of uh, argumentation. Right? So I do believe, I mean, partly you know, in my discussions with my colleagues, uh, you know, John Krakauer, Asif Ghazan, and we wrote, you know, we wrote about this together a few years ago to sort of make the point a little bit polemically, obviously, because it's more fun that way. But if we read, you know, the, the successful cases of where there's been, let's say, a mapping between neurobiology and behavior are those where both sides have been extremely careful to dissect the behavior and the neurobiology. And for me, you know, a really prime example is, for instance, the work that Mark Konishi and Catherine Card have done in sound localization of the barn owl. There, you know, from soup to nuts, from the cell to the circuit, to the actual algorithm implement in the circuit, to the behavior, everything. Now, that's a pretty, you know, there are very, very few examples of that form. Um, we, of course, so, you know, why, why did that work? Is because um, Konishi and Carr had an extremely clear model of the behavior. And so there was a particular algorithm, the Jeffress model of how sound localization works, that allowed them to probe the brain looking for specific circuits. That's like the delay line That's model. That's the delay line plus coincidence detector model, which is extremely, you know, it was a very clever and simple, extremely simple model that, you know, you could uh, use to actually point cannons at things and stuff like that. It was you know, one of those post-war time models <laughs> and the but it then lay around for years but it took you know it took understanding that that's one way to solve this very specific behavior this is how you cash it out and they, and they looked for that kind of cell and you know they wouldn't have found it had they not looked for it because it's just too complicated unless you're looking for instance for a coincidence detector of that type to that kind of stimulus you'd be poking around forever so my position on this is that we, you know, insofar as we're not just studying tissue, you know, and it's, let's say, by the implementational level of analysis, if we're studying something that underlies behavior, we would do well to, you know, get our lessons from, thing, from let's say, the ethologists of the mid-20th century, you know, read Tinbergen, read Lorenz, I mean, people who had 
really detailed, deep insights into the structure of behavior. And they weren't just making those up. I mean, they were extremely um, thoughtful, not just observations, but really model builders, too. These are quite explicit in their, in their accounts. And we've gone away from that to uh, studying behaviors in the lab, regardless of whether it's you know, animal prep or human experiments, that are, ex that are not that they're stupid. I mean, they're designed often to, to you know, test certain things, but they're often not the kind of things that animals or humans do. Right? So they're very far from the kind of the natural set of subroutines. And I think we thematize that in this paper as well. So clearly that goes both ways. I mean, you have to have a very good analysis of the behavior to even do a meaningful neuroscience experiment. And I stand my ground on that. Right? So I think the behavior or cognition should take a more muscular stance and, a more, more, and not just be the sort of, you know, the add-on. I mean, because it's not like people don't know something. But of course it goes both ways in the sense that you now learn something. I mean, my example that I talked about briefly is I think I've learned in the last about 10 years in experiments from my lab that the, the concept of syllable, which is, a, you know, you'd think that's trivially true, is absolutely foundational for you know, understanding how we comprehend speech. But it's actually not a concept that's particularly popular in linguistics itself. So, so here's a case where I now have... Uh, data from the neuroscience and a bunch of experiments that say, hey, this is, we're pretty sure that this matters. You guys have to now rethink the behavioral or the, co the computational model to um, accommodate these findings. And so there's clearly a kind of dynamic back and forth. It's just that there's neither, uh, there's no reductionism in the sense that we talked about. Or the, you can't say that one science is more fundamental. And right? so there's a famous paper called More is Different from a physicist, I believe it was in 1971 or 1972 in science. It's worth reading. And it's uh, different, you know, we, we can't have simple mappings between different kinds of science and just reduce, it's, it's just too difficult a problem. So we should try to find what are parallels and possible points of connection and unification. And that's a very difficult intellectual endeavor, which is fun but cool. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to end this podcast. <laughs> thank you very much for this, talking to us. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Pipple, for um, uh, joining us today. Um, what is your Twitter handle? You're active on Twitter. Uh, yes, follow me on Twitter. It's a new H index. Um, I think I'm at David Pipple. Okay, awesome. Good plug. Um, any, anything else to... What are you guys on Twitter so I can follow you back? Uh, at JW Science. You still have a Twitter handle? Yeah. Okay. I'm uh, at Salad Zombie. And, um, and both the NeuroPodcast is at NeuroPodcast. At NeuroPodcast. That's right. Neuropodcast. Yeah. Okay. I'll follow everyone. Um, that was a great conversation. Um, nice to talk to you. Guys. I definitely learned a lot today. Yes. Um, thank you. David of the Purple. Yeah. Purple without the purple R. Purple without the R. Um, awesome. So until next time, thank you for listening. This has been a production by the Max Planck Florida Institute for Neuroscience. You can listen in on iTunes or SoundCloud. Follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at NeuroPodcast.